the angel of love smiles at you for listening to America's most iconic podcast, The Pod People. I'm Matisse Van Rossum. A foul tarnished, <laughs> slutty tarnished. <laughs> I'm Thinky, your nasty tarnished. <laughs> I'm your Kawaii King, Ben Sheets. Hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, but tonight you can call me Yoko because I'm breaking up the band. Oh man, it's deep. You see, yeah, it's it's got that's layers got, to it. That's got layers, like an onion. And who knows? By the end of this a podcast, maybe you will have broken up the band. It's it's a risk we Are take. You graduating, every, we it's a risk we take every episode. And you know, yeah. I just might be. That's right. Well, that's how it we're Cleveland is graduating from the podcast, moving on to bigger, <laughs> better things. Yep. Well, better bigger, is yet to be bigger, said. <laughs> bigger and better podcasts. Yeah, my new podcast is going to be called the the Cleveland Show. Steamer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the either Cle- one is not great. <laughs> the Cle- it's a bad look. Cleveland Steamer. <laughs> either they're, they're both bad. I think Cleveland. Me calling it the Cleveland Steamer Show is is a, it's pretty good. Worse look. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. I hate I mean, it. I hate assuming it. I, hate that. I support. Cleveland I support Steamer your isn't about endeavors. shitting. Well, that podcast well, about they, Steam, probably... steamboats, steamboats, oh, yeah, old timey steamboats. Okay. It's false advertising, but I like it. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel I feel like it's very like on brand for you. Can we talk about Perfect Blue? We, I, I guess, <laughs> I guess we can. Yeah, let's. let's that's talk why. About Blue. <laughs> that's why we're here, isn't it? Yeah, Cleveland chose the film uh, that we were talking about this week, and uh, as as. Cleveland is want to do. He chose an anime for us. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I do a lot of art. I paint things for a living. I art direct for a living, so I'm constantly thinking about technical shit uh, in relation to art and movies. And uh, some of the best technical art is in anime. Would you say that anime? Would, would you say that animation is cinema? I would say it's the cinema. I would say it's Kino, even. Wow. Yeah, I'd go that far. Well, you know, I can't be mad at you for the film you chose this week, because we're talking about Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue from 1997. Yeah, an absolute banger. Great flick. Yeah. Um, this is my first time seeing it, too. I know yours as well, Cleveland. This is my second time watching it, and uh, I have to say, I liked it a lot more on the second viewing. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I need to see it again to fully appreciate I was it because the there's thing. there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Well, it's especially in the latter half. Yeah, absolutely. And like Lord knows, I've watched Paprika maybe 15 20 times. It and Princess Mononoke are the films that I'm just always going back to and rewatching. I'm just so deeply in love with um Japanese culture. Satoshi Kon. <laughs> no. No, I mean a little, but no. I must say... Would you consider and, yourself an otaku? I would not. I I would not. I would run from that term. <laughs> I think I would go as far as to say. Uh, I'm, an art, loves, I'm an art taku. I like good art. He loves manga. Nope. And... I sure don't. I, I really earnestly... I, he's got a he's got a, a nice collection of anime body pillows, swords, many waifus, <laughs> one of whom's an aircraft carrier. That's a bit of an inside joke. But yeah, no. Um, the the only I'm, I like I like old school anime a lot. I'm a snob in that respect. How old school are we talking about? Oh, nothing. Are we talking uh, about like getting the scrolls out? 
Would you consider yes. yourself an anime Ronin? No. <laughs> God damn it. Um, no, but in all seriousness, um, I do. Uh, I think the 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 weebiest thing that I I own is the original color print of or uh, you know part of the original color print series of Akira. Yeah, that's not that. Well, that's yeah. not counting the. I think I think that's like a legitimate the, the collection know, so. of kimonos. Yeah, it's probably my most valued possession, honestly. Um, I think shut the fuck up, uh, <laughs> man. You know, I'm gonna I say kimono. I don't have those. I was actually just thinking the other night that I, as as a man of comfort, I really should own more kimonos. Same kimonos are fucking dope. Kimonos are pretty so cool. There's there's fewer uh, ways to look cool than. Um, wearing an extra large pair of basketball shorts and uh, a kimono robe open at the top, loosely tied at the waist with a gold chain. It's so swag. And <laughs> I, I, I gotta be real, like, uh, the weave, weave, weave association aside, it's, it's fucking swag. And, you know, it's all the comfort of a robe and all the comfort of a kilt. Yeah, wow. You know? You get that silk, too. Yeah, dude. Kimonos, man. Shout out to Kimonos, the Shout out official to Kimonos. sponsor of this episode. Shout out to Japan. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Satoshi Kon. Shout out, shout out to Satoshi Kon. So, uh, this is a movie I have been needing to see for years and years now. Um, I, I always talk about how much I love Paprika. I just was a moment ago. Uh, and it's, it's often a surprise to all my friends when I tell them I haven't seen Perfect Blue. So why haven't I seen it? I have been waiting for the perfect moment the perfect blue moment to watch this movie. God damn it. We're finally here. I've finally done it. Here we are. To watch it with my boys, which was the perfect way to watch it. Perfect boys. And how do you, perfect blue. And how do you feel coming out the other side? Did it live up to your expectations? It did. What do you have to say about the allegations? I, uh, I didn't do it. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I didn't do it. (laughs) Look at my suit. (laughs) Look at my suit. It's too, too nice. Too pretty. Too, too perfect, too I would, blue. I would rather wear blue jeans than a tight business suit. Hey, that's a lyric in one of the songs. That's good. Good. Uh, so, uh, I'm just going to get out of the way since I've already been rambling about how much I love it. It's going to come up a few more times, uh, almost certainly. But you can see the DNA of this movie all over Paprika. There's a lot of similar match cuts. Um, which Satoshi Kon is like his entire career. Yeah, I mean, that's just Satoshi Um, Kon's King of the match cut. But using match cuts to simulate dream, like that ethereal dream sequence, um, it's not even really a sequence, it's it's pervasive throughout the film, but like dream sequencing, I think is a way to, way to phrase it. Um, uh, there are some poses and movements, uh, where our, our protagonist, like she kind of like. Uh, puts her shoulders out, cocks her head, and, like, uh, leans forward that's, like, uh, identical to the way that, like, Paprika, like, leans forward. I I think they were probably using, like, similar, like, like the same model or same references. Yeah, well, for lack of a better term, like, Satoshi Kon loves to do quote-unquote mindfuck movies. Cerebral films, yeah. Well, I, I would say they're very... They're very similar, but at the same time very different. Whereas Paprika is much more literalist in the surrealness and kind of dream uh, world. Uh, this movie gets much more cerebral and 
obscure in how it goes about it because you it's know a little more abstract. Yeah, yeah, because it really plays with the idea of blending reality and dream to the point where you're not sure which is which. Yeah. Yeah, uh, reality and dream reality reality and fiction in terms yeah. of like television fiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, right? Because, like, I mean, the plot of Paprika, which is just, a, it's just essentially Inception, is there's a dream machine, and what if the dream machine broke? Uh, and so, like, reality from the beginning to end of Paprika has essentially been stripped away, and we're left with this just cavalcade of insanity. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to decipher what could actually be the reality, and in, in Paprika, essentially, like, every tier of the dream is also real. Uh, whereas in Perfect Blue, like, if you step back away from it, there is a core narrative. There is, like, something very grounded that is happening, but we're, we're spiraled away in this person's, like... Well, yeah, we're seeing romantic. it from, uh... It's tighter, A too. limited perspective. Yeah, and I really like that about it. I, I really like, um, I really like how these movies pair with each other, because, like, Perfect Blue is, is a more, to me, a, a more tethered paprika. It's, it's really about this one singular person and their identity that's being severed you know but like it's still about that one person paprika is about like six different people um and it's just that little bit of spice you know as they put it and um we're constantly being brought in and out of people and like in dreams we're brought in and out of people's different personalities and the people kind of flow into each other but here like it's all her it's her different it's the different masks she puts on and the different personas and she has sort of different names for those different personas but it's all like stemming from this one person and it's, and again, like we said, it's a much more grounded story in that sense, though it's still quite a mindfuck. Yeah. And I love it for that. And I, I, and I like, at a certain point beyond that, it's it's apples and dogs, you know? Like, they're, for as similar as the movies are, they're also quite different. Well, yeah, uh, I would say Perfect Blue is very rooted in almost giallo traditions. In a yes! Lot of ways. Very much yeah. so. Um, you know, with the kind of Black Love Killer, who's kind of obscured. Uh, it reminded me of opera mm. in a lot of times with the crazed fan, you know. There's, yeah. a, there's a movie, it's on Shudder, it's a Jalo film, um, about an evil editor. I think it's just called Editor. Oh, know? The Editor? The Editor, yeah. Yeah, it's I, kind I, of, I a lot of pastiche of old Jalo movies. Yeah. Made in like 2014. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like a, the black dynamite of Jalo. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was quite similar. Um, which, I mean, again, obviously it came out after Perfect Blue, so I'm sure there was some... Well, I know that Satoshi Kon had originally written this to be live action. Yes. And it ended up being animation, I think, due to budgetary constraints? So, Satoshi Kon is quoted um, as saying, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but he, he originally wanted to be a live action director. But he found that you could show more with less in animation. So the number of frames it takes to, like, transcribe something in realism is uh, much higher than the number of frames and the amount of, like, total control that you have in animation, right? Animation, you have to draw and render everything out. All of the backgrounds, all of the everything has to be fully thought through. And sure, set designers and movies do something similar, but because, like, there's just so much more detail and information that comes into realism, you can't show and, like... Uh, display things as clearly. So Satoshi Kon made, like, a very, like, um, careful effort to move into animation so that he could more, like, 
perfectly realize this vision. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense for something like Paprika, but I I was really struck watching this film that it does feel shot shot's the wrong word of course cuz it's animation, but it does feel blocked like a live action film yeah, well, in a yeah. lot of ways. What's like, interesting about Satoshi Khan's uh, kind of pre-production work is unlike a lot of anime directors and a lot of directors in general, yeah. he very meticulously storyboards every single shot out. So there's no kind of uh, unknown in the process before like they even start production. They have every single shot drawn out in detail exactly what it's going to look like. It so. shows, too. Like, everything feels so, like, mm-hmm. meticulously Which, intentional. In fairness, isn't too far from adapting a manga. At that point. Yeah, sure. Like, to some capacity. Like, like, like mangas are, like, fully rendered. Sure, you know, but even that, shot. you're losing some in translation due to the, the medium. No, you know, you're right. Yeah, manga course. changes... Aspect ratio, but, you know, from panel to panel, mm-hmm. where, like, with, you know, storyboarding things out, you know exactly what where the frame is at any point. Also, and like, that's how you get away with so many great match cuts, yeah. you know? But I, I also do get, get the sense that, like, when Satoshi Kon was storyboarding this film originally, he was storyboarding a live-action film. Sure. And then, and, and, like, it really shows. It's like, there's only a few sequences in this movie where I feel like they sort of changed after they made the switch to animation. That's just like a gut feeling. I don't, I'm not basing that off of anything. Um, but like a lot of it is, it feels more grounded than a lot of like animated films that I'm used to, I guess. It's not a, a that's not like a, a criticism either. I, I really liked this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, no. I, and I love the way it looks and I love the way it's Beautiful. sequenced. I think having it as an animated film gives them a little more flexibility in some of the things, especially with her sort of mirror self yeah. of her idol self showing that, you know, helps in animation because they can maintain it feeling grounded yes um the illustrations the backgrounds too you can tell that they're they took a lot of steps to focus on like to focus on realism and not a sense of heightened realism that so much modern anime has right like where modern anime that that's set in present day often is even still feels like so elevated mm-hmm. you know these incredible grand like landscapes and uh, sky settings and also like the highlights are also like so crisply rendered and such and here like the color is often made like pretty muted you know intentionally and like it's it's brought back and it's it's desaturated and it um uh it works really well for um keeping that that realism and that grounded feeling for when we do enter a dream and where do things do suddenly feel wrong. Mm. Um, even compared to Paprika. Like, Paprika is a really glistening and shining and bright and pretty. Yeah. And this movie's nothing like that. It's it's very grounded and heavy. Uh, it, it reminded me of uh, Tokyo Godfathers in that respect, too, which is yeah. sort of a nice middle ground. It's his final film. Mm-hmm. Satoshi Khan's final film. Uh, well, we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves. We should probably explain, like, the basics of what the plot is. Yeah, totally. Um, Mima, our, our our lead, was a, a Japanese pop idol who uh, decides to move into acting 
on the recommendation of her management and it kind of covers her shifting from one role to the other while having kind of a weird stalker Mm -hmm. and also kind of grappling with the idea of uh, those roles and performance within those roles as, you know, grappling with that and her sense of self. And I always loved um, that premise. I've always always known what, like, The Perfectly was about a pop idol who has a, a stalker. And her world is sort of broken down. I always knew that going in. What I wasn't aware of is that it was about a pop idol who graduates um, and moves into uh, dramatic acting. And what I really like about that is it takes it from being just a like conspiracy film or like a, uh, a giallo sort of like killer film where this actress is being stalked. And it makes it more three-dimensional where there's essentially like two core plot lines happening, right? And they, they coincide with each other by the end. And that's, she is transitioning into like a new phase of her career and she's trying, and her quest is to become this great actress. Um, even though she already is coming from like a, a, a position of, of, of fame and notoriety. Um, she's now like, she's, she has a new goal and objective. And then the, you know, in addition to like the X and Y, there's like a three-dimensional Z, Z to the plot that gives it a lot of depth and which is her stalker um who is upset by this change in her role in her career and it you know how that affects her and their sort of how their personalities meld by the end is really fucking neat yeah i mean not to oversimplify it but the whole movie is really about like performance yes you know it's about kind of the roles that mima embodies whether it's being a pop star or kind of the transition and you know uh, losing some of her old self within, you know, that shift and also trying to figure out what herself even means, you know? In that way, it reminds me a lot of uh, Infinity Pool. Sure. I saw earlier <laughs> this year. Yeah. I've been thinking about that movie a lot this year. Um, but, yeah, they're, like, it's it's very much about, like, the bifurcation of self and identity and that the dissociation that brings and some of the violent impulses that it awakes to um and and it's it's cool in this movie because like without getting too far ahead of ourselves or getting too specific like most of the movie is from her perspective is we're limited to her perspective but like the the delusion is not like specific to her it enfolds several people mm-hmm. in in an interesting way kind of a uh, a confusing way i will say a little bit sure. it's it's yeah. just like it's so dense on a first viewing yeah well, and it's like so I, I mentioned before it's very lynchian it yeah. reminds me quite a bit of like mulholland drive oh yeah um you perfect know, blue velvet <laughs> well, I would say per, uh, Blue Velvet is even a bit more grounded. Than, yeah. You know, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Where, like, I find the texture in this film of her kind of getting lost in her acting role in this kind of lurid TV show, crime show. Yeah. And uh, that drama. getting intertwined with uh, herself to the point where later in the movie, not to jump too far ahead again, but uh, 
we kind of lose track of which is which. Yeah. I I find that so well done and so fascinating. And it's it's a it's a trope I've seen explored before in film that idea uh, pretty often uh, that that idea of the actor sort of losing themselves in the role. Yes. Um. And it, it, that idea I think has become even more popular in pop culture after like the death of Heath Ledger, for instance. Right. Like that's when like everyone was talking about that concept of like oh wow actors can really hurt themselves like getting he, in he really went joker mode yeah, yeah and and you know it's it's that's that's always like a a, a sort of like mythology about him that has yes. bothered me for a lot because it's not way. true but it is yeah. like the the narrative that was built up right it's because him. he you know he happened to die you know right before the dark knight premiered so that's when everybody sees him as the joker oh he went he went to joker mode he got too he got too dark and depressed and it caused him to self destruct when it's like no he had long time struggles with like opiate opiate addiction Mm. and depression and like like that's yeah it's this it's this sort of like uh false uh story that's like attributed to that um but i mean not the comparison to this film is totally correct and something else that is i think made this movie age like a fine wine and become even more relevant now is the whole world of content creators and that idea of parasocial relationships. Yeah. Um, like, that that concept has only become more and more, like, understood and talked about as a society. Um, far more than just that idea of paparazzis, you know, in the 90s. and The people that I listen to on my favorite podcast are my best friends, actually. Yeah. Well, that's the... <laughs> Hi. The, that's an interesting thing, because in Japan, like, idol culture when this movie released was huge just as relevant as ever and you know i i think that's the big thing it's commenting on where like it's kind of transformed uh in our americanized culture to have something similar you know through stuff like content creators and streamers and it's also seeped into internet culture i mean the the front page of Reddit, for instance, is constantly, like, uh, I'm constantly seeing, like, Hololive posts, you know, come up. Back when I didn't have, like, a like a Reddit sign-in, it was just on the front page. I don't know what, what it was. Is. It's, um, it's, like, a big, it's a huge, like, VTuber, like, Japanese, like, player thing. I don't really understand it myself. I'm, like, I have, like, a maybe a toe in that world. Um, but, uh, it's... Uh, I thought you were the otaku of us. No, stop saying that. Uh, <laughs> the, yes. No. Um, the anime Ronin. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I do, I do have a friend who has a much better understanding of these oh, sorts of things. Oh, yeah, a uh, friend. Our, uh, long, long time, uh, friend of the podcast and, uh, previous guest in the podcast, Spence, who, uh, right before airing, I, I asked him to define a couple of things for me. Okay. Um, and this leads nicely wow. back into the beginning of the, the movie, also. Because the film starts with, uh, Mima doing her final performance. Yeah, with her, with her girl group. With her girl group. Cham. Cham. That's right. They kind of slap, honestly. They yeah, they, oh, not even kind of. They rule. Oh, yeah, yeah bro. All, all, all their tracks are bangers. The angel of love smiles at you, baby. Oh, yeah. Mm. Speaks to my soul, man. Um, uh, and she announces before their final song that she is graduating. Well, at least she tries to announce. (laughs) There's some punks that are throwing shit and kind of cause a a ruckus. Yeah. Yeah, they're throwing cans. And there's a fan in the crowd who really doesn't like that. 
Um, and I, I love how that's all that's all paced and played out. But I wanted to kind of stop and just sort of get into what graduating is, like as a pop star and as an idol in Japan. So I asked Spence, like, hey, can you kind of break down, like, the idol and, you know, idol graduation thing? He said, yeah, so graduation is essentially a firing or quit, but it's done in a way that's a celebration and seen as a moving on uh, thing with their uh, their time and their characters and idol remaining. Essentially a way to detach the character from the person. And how fitting is that, right? Like, she, yeah. the character... Her her whole struggle is detaching her character from her personality. Yeah. Throughout the rest. Well, of as the soon movie. as she starts becoming an actor, her previous pop idol persona persona takes on a life of its own, like literally. Well, there's definitely an internal struggle early on because you know this was a pop group that kind of played local shows and never really hit it big. They never charted or anything. Yeah, and yeah. then after. Mima quits, they hit the top 100, and she kind of has the struggle where she wants to feel like part of that, but she's already moved on. And, uh... They're the other room partying. Well, and because they never hit it big until she's out, so Mm -hmm. she's, you know, they're better as a duo. They're better without her. Which is cool, because you could also read the reality of the situation as the press of her leaving has more people talking about and promoting the sure promoting champ um so like it, it was the press bump that they needed to climb in the charts it's an ouroboros yes and so we don't really know how much of that is because she left or, or yeah whatever. you know i will say we do hear one of their songs as a duo later and i don't think it slaps quite as hard do as you think it's the... by design yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's. I think it's hard to say. I think that's. It may just be a personal preference thing. Um, I prefer songs about the angels of love uh, over um, not wanting to wear tight business suits and want, <laughs> they want to wear jeans instead. I just. I don't know. <laughs> it's a little. It's a little more banal. On the topic of like their songs, I, I also really like that the song that she plays after she announces that she's graduating. Sounds like the closing credits of an anime. Yeah. Like, and how and that's when they do the opening credits of the film. Yeah, right? and they, so the, they do the opening credits of this film in the style of anime closing credits because it's the closing of her career. Yeah. That's so fucking neat. That's so clever. Like, yeah, I love that shit, man. This movie's so fucking smart. Like, yeah. Um, Did you have more Japanese stuff you yes, needed to... Yes, uh, Spence uh, filled me in on one other thing. Okay. I, I've heard the term before, and it's it's a pretty gross one. Um, and it's never said or stated directly in this film, uh, unlike, you know, her graduating, but it is kind of, I, I saw it as like one of the unseen kind of like ticking time bombs throughout the film. Um, and it's this whole like idea in idol culture that's kind of pervasive and it's this concept, uh, it's, it's often referred to as like the Christmas cake and it's really gross. Um, like basically, okay. So I asked since like, cause I was trying to remember exactly what it was about. And it's that whole idea of like aging actors and they kind of fall out, you know, or whatever. Um, and it's, uh, it, Spence kind of like filled me back in on it again. It's a, uh, the Christmas cake is due to the fact that children are usually given Christmas cakes growing up, which have strawberries in them, which means they perish, perish very fast. And after Christmas are discounted and thrown out. When a woman is referred to as a Christmas cake, it's usually in their mid twenties and essentially means that they are past their prime because Christmas is the 25th. Gross. Uh, I see. Fucking yeah. gross. <laughs> well, we uh, see... We do get strawberry cake very literally. That's right, we do! I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah so, and it's when so she's that's the eating with uh, 
one of her managers, Riku. Riku, yeah. yeah. And Riku was a former was a pop former idol. pop idol as well. Whoa, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, how yeah. about that, right? Um, I so also the theme, detail, the right theme there, literally yeah. did play, and she's literally eating a Christmas cake. Yeah, and wow. it's like they do mention too that like right as she's doing this, like she's just had her twenty first birthday. Yep. So it's like the fact that you know, she's now considered like too old and past her prime when she's like just turned 21 yeah which like, like pedophile like, culture weird yeah we, oh yeah i didn't say it but like fucking weird right and like it's yeah she, she's literally like entering her prime like i mean and... we live in a pedophile culture too so yay <laughs> that's, that's not that's not commentary on japan or anything but... yeah yay! <laughs> um so anywho um yeah, so like there is that that uh, the weight of her, you know, biology hanging over her head. She's she's only got so long yeah. uh, to get her career really off the road before it's too late. Which also strategically is why she's like leveraging her career towards acting, dramatic acting, as opposed to being a pop icon because you know that has a much more limited timestamp on it. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is uh, the way they kind of introduce the shift is kind of her two managers kind of debating it and talking about it. And she's just looking down the whole time. And it feels like she's not really involved in the process right. of that decision. Well, she's not. The whole thing is just, like, her being pulled along by, like, a fucking, you know, fishing line, basically. Because she's having to do all of this stuff to, like you know, that people keep telling her is just part of the industry, you know, in order to succeed, to make having left her past life behind worth it, right? Because mm -hmm. we see, like, the first time she's on the show, she only has one line. And, you know, her managers are, like, arguing with, like, the dirt, like, the, the show writer and everything. It's like, like, look, she left, she left, like, her successful pop idol life behind for this, like, you can't give her more than one line. They're like, oh, well, pop idols are difficult to work with, you know? Like, there's a stigma behind them. And so they finally convince them to, like, write more of her character into the show as they go. But instead of, like, giving her, like, a a real character the way they do that is like is oh well okay we're going to we're going to write a scene where she gets raped in a strip club yeah and, and it's like that's what she's got to do. <laughs> that's that that's all she's going to be good for well i i, I do think it's kind of interesting how like the the pop idol uh persona is you know generally very childlike and innocent as we've been talking about mm -hmm. and kind of in that shift to kind of detach from that she is put into situations where she has to be forced into very adult situations yeah being in a kind of a rape scene in kind of a naked photo shoot uh she's really pushed into these situations where like that uh, that dichotomy couldn't be stronger. Yeah. You know? That caused her to dissociate further, too. Yeah. Because she keeps telling herself, is like, well, this is the price. Like, this is the cost. This is what I have to do if I want to be a serious actor and be taken seriously. 
not a big deal. It's not like I'm really being raped, right? But then when they shoot that rape scene, like, this film presents it as if she is actually being raped. She diso- and she dissociates. And she, and and she dissociates. It's, and it's just like, it's and all lot. of these things, and the same thing happens with, like, the, the nude photo shoot later, where we even see, like, her two, like, former bandmates in Cham, like, sort of talking about her behind her back, being like, oh, yeah, she's got to go do that photo shoot later. Well, that photographer is notorious for being able to get women to get naked during the photo shoot. And they're like, oh, and the other one's like, oh, well, she won't have a problem with that. You see what she's already doing on the show, blah, 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 and all this. It's like all of these indignities that she's forced to suffer just like fracture her her personality further which like pairs so wonderfully with that concept of like the the dissociated killer it's very like fight club it's very um reminiscent of a lot of these other like crime films where she's she keeps waking up in her bed after an event happens and we don't know like and we're even led to think throughout the film like oh is she the killer you know because she keeps dissociating and you know maybe when she's in these these fugue states like that's when she kills we don't know um and uh but before we get into the who's and why's and like the reveals there i think that's a good opportunity to talk about the stalker yeah because how that also meets at the end like we mentioned there is there's someone like watching her very closely during her final performance who gets very upset and goes and even fights the the rough, like the the punks that are throwing. He's hands. one of the security guards at the event who's yeah. like watching the stage. The first shot we the first thing we get of him is like he's like holding his hand up, and we see from his perspective that it looks like she's like dancing in the palm of his hand. Yeah, and you know they do kind of do the the very cliche thing of making like the the creepy stalker like look like a weird like deformed a, freak like a ghoul he looks um he's got the insmith look for sure his eyes are like very separated and i love it big too. big sloth vibes he has, like, he has, like, like he's got the long hair we only most of the time, we only see one of his eyes because the hair is like in front of his face. But he looks he looks like he, if Sloth from the Goonies went to a con dressed as uh, L from Death Note. <laughs> I like how you can almost never see the whites of his eyes. You know, his eyes are always like dark or black. He's got like gray fish eyes, yeah. kind of. Well, it's, I, I love that it's an intentionally like where he he's made to look kind of like a like I I definitely I don't use the term Innsmouth look lightly with it. Like I think it's very intentional that like they made his eyes like so separated and his teeth too are like really unhygienic and like kind of jumbled. But they're always shot in a light that makes it look like he's got like wide shark eyes and sharp teeth, and he looks predatory. He looks he looks like a like a shark that's stalking her in the water. It's it's really cool. Like but whenever like the light is shown on him directly, he just he he just looks like a gross nerd. And that's it's impressive. It's it's really cool. Yeah, they they do a really good job making him feel both intimidating and pathetic. Yes. Like mm. that's a really hard well line to kind of go down but they they do it well like i i think a great example is the opening scene with him being introduced and you know someone throws a can on stage the the rowdy punks and he goes to confront them and he gets beat up and they beat the shit out of him yeah Yeah. but later he grabs one of their arms and they get freaked out and 
run off yeah you know so in that scene alone we're getting kind of both sides of that yeah he's he's obviously very unstable and you know cleveland you made you made a joke at one point uh that he's a red herring because he looks like a fish yeah um and it's like it does it does he does seem like a red herring because it's like Come on, man. This is, like, too obvious. Like, she, early on, like, some of the weird stuff's happening. Is, like, she's getting... She gets, like, a weird letter that directs her to, like, a message board online where somebody is basically, like, role-playing as her, but with to, like, a... Somebody's watching me! Yeah, to, like, a highly, like, a highly specific, detailed... Um, and she gets like a fax that's just like the word traitor written over and over again. She gets a phone call that's just somebody. Because like the, even the subtitles where it's traitor written all over again, like the letters are like inner, like all the capitalization. It's like the newspaper print, you know, uh, trope where people just cut out letters. Yeah. Um, and glue them together Mm -hmm. but she also Um, gets a call yeah she gets a call where she just hears somebody like breathing heavily on the other line it's like these are all you know like classic tropes like he's also the security guard at the tv studio or whatever because he's there he's always on set when she's around so it's like it does sort of feel like he's like well this is a little too obvious right and by the end it reaches a point where it both is and isn't because, like, he is the stalk- he is the stalker, but there's also more to it than that yes. that is, like, less well-telegraphed. So he's, like, half a red herring. I don't know. It's it's weird. I, I'm not- I wasn't sure how I felt about it, like, in the moment, but I, I think I'm coming around on it. I love it. I think- I think it's really cool how he- he, he represents the concept of stalkers. Which he has, and I love it too because he's he's often not acting alone. We see throughout the film he's with like a bunch of other dudes who are also like you know idol fans, and they're they're going to you know different storefronts and they're looking through like idol magazines and announcements, and they're talking about the next big gig and why or why not like she's making the right career choices from oh, the news see, I that didn't... they're watching. And he's always kind of there. Yeah, I didn't read that as him, like, being with them, though. Well, no, he's, yeah, he's not with them, but he's always, he, he's not with them as, like, a member of the group, but he's always around and listening. Yeah. And, and, and taking in all of that stuff. He's always lurking, yeah. See, yeah. I, I read it as kind of the external expectations of the, the persona and the performance yeah. that uh, Mima has throughout the movie. Yeah. Whereas, like, her visions of seeing her idol self that we increasingly see more and more of throughout the movie is her internal kind of perception of that. Right. And so I, I feel like it's kind of required to have both sides really being shown both yeah. the external and internal well, forces at that, play. That's what I think is so interesting about it because like we do see her arguing with, you know, this this sort of shadow self that she has that is still like wearing the costume that she wore in in Cham and being like, you know, I'm you know, you're I'm not you anymore. You're tarnished like you've 
uh, you've uh, disgraced yourself, you know, well... Tarnished. <laughs> tarn, foul tarnished. <laughs> Slutty tarnished. Slutty tarnished. <laughs> um, me- meanwhile, you know, like, I'm I'm still pure and, and good, and you wish you were still me. But then, like, l- we also see that the stalker is seeing that vision of her, too. Like, when we see that he's, like, writing on the message board and stuff, like, she's, like, talking to him and, and telling him, is like, that other that other me is not really me. That's an imposter, you know? And, and, and she's And she's keeping me from, like, achieving my full potential. So it becomes, like, a shared delusion that the two of them have even though they're never like interacting with one another they're haunted by the same ghost well, it works too because it only appears or the the ghost idol of her former self right only starts appearing after mima starts reading the stalker board right yeah and so like it's which cuz it knows all right. it knows all the tiniest little details of her life mm-hmm. but doesn't but still is is like at one point like begging for help to get like off the show and stuff she's like well that's not me like i didn't do that so it's like yeah it's it's fueling her delusion that there is this past version of herself that has taken on a I life love, of its own. i saw that as like him like kind of grim a worm tonguing you know, yeah, a little bit. Like but it's, like, it's like he's he's like kind of digitally projecting those those ideas into her head as she gets caught up in all the things that this like hyper fan, you know, the stalker is saying about her. But it turns it starts, out that she somebody's to forget that it's not her that's thinking these things. But it turns out that somebody's doing the same thing to him. <laughs> yes, I love his kind of uh, stalker den. I, I guess you could call it. Classic, yes. classic the, incel cave. The the pictures of her taped oh, you know what up, stinks in there. and even like one on the ceiling. And I bet it smelled crazy a, in there. Yeah, and <laughs> the art is incredible. Like yeah, yeah, all the different posters like splayed out of her, and they all the, start talking the to him. Where they're all talking in unison at yeah. him. What a, a feat! Too. Super unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I love I love uh, how pop imagery is portrayed throughout the film, in particular. Um, there's a bit early on where the super fans go to like an anime manga store. Um, and there's this great shot, uh, sort of setting that up of like an anime face. And now we're watching an animated film, but they, they take extra steps to make this like anime billboard look like anime, like in that world. All the proportions are even more hyper exaggerated. Like so we know, so we know that it's anime within anime. anime. Yeah, it's like the second layer down <laughs> yeah. of anime. And and it and the too di- too deep for me. I will never go that many layers of anime <laughs> yeah. down. And, and I stay on the surface. <laughs> yeah. Um. And it's it's great because like that che- like that weird chibi face is drawn like it with with the intent to feel kind of wrong and distort it. Yeah. Which is great, because, like, I mean, the term, like, chibi itself, like, literally means, like, distorted, um, or something along those lines. It's not, I, I'm getting it a little wrong, but, uh, it's, I just, I thought that was a fun, like, kind of point to touch on, is, like, there's all these concepts and visual and written themes of, like, distortion of the self and disillusionment. You know, even with these other aspects of the world, like, we're getting to see those themes play out, you know, in, like, an anime, and, like, these weird projections of, like, um, inachievable ideals. 
It's cool. It's cool shit, man. So you touched on the fact that our stalker has things being whispered into his ear as well. Grima worm tongue is being Grima worm tongued. Yeah, as it as it goes. Should we go it's ahead like and a, all it's that like a shit? it's like a worm triangle. A wor- oh yeah, worm triangle. I like that. Yeah, let's let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and get into like, it. There's plenty more we can unpackage and discuss, but I think we really kind of need to get to the end to retread from here. So yeah, spoilers for Perfect Blue. I think it's I think it's important to discuss too because I'm again like not sure how I feel about it, and I think that unpacking it is going to be helpful in determining whether I like it or not. Well, you want to start? Yeah. So basically, what's What's revealed by the end, um, you know, after a, a, a long series of sort of, you know, surreal occurrences where, like, her life really starts to blend in with the television show reality that she's filming. Reality really breaks down. Reality breaking down, all of this stuff, yeah. And it's, and it's eventually revealed at the end that... Her manager, one of her managers slash friends, Rumi, the the other former pop idol, is the one who has been writing emails to the stalker as the quote-unquote real Mima that's feeding him all of this information about her and sort of like planting these ideas that like the new Mima is is, uh, you know, an imposter that needs to be killed, that needs to be removed. And... <laughs> I like how that's foreshadowed, too, because he he says in his, like, online diaries that Mima's been talking to him and that Mima's been sending him emails. And, like, the real Mima's, like... Well, he says like, it He says it when he attacks Mima um, in and, the, tries on, and tries to rape her on the strip club set where she filmed the rape scene previously yeah he he says that like mima has been emailing me every day and it's kind of like a throwaway line at that point but then it's like when it's revealed that it's actually roomy it's like okay things come together a little bit more but it's also like because of a a similar like psychotic like dissociative break that roomy has had where she has literally taken on the persona of the old mima and to the point of even, like, dressing like her, the whole last, you know, chase-slash-fight sequence is, uh, you know, sort of going back and forth, showing, like, the the, the past ghost Mima, and then also just, like, Rumi in the costume. And it's it's so well shot. Uh, but... Yeah, that whole sequence is, like, is really fantastically done, um like well i love how it's introduced because we go she goes back to her apartment and it looks like it does at the beginning of the film like near the beginning she took takes down the the cham poster to kind of move on to the next stage of her life and her fish die yeah at a certain point and so she goes back to her apartment and the posters back up and all the fish are alive and so immediately she knows something's not right. Yeah, she's like, this isn't my room. This is not my beautiful house. This, this is not, not my, my beautiful, beautiful life. life. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> and, uh, then, like, Rumi appears, dressers like, no, this is Mima's room. And, um, and that sort of kicks the whole thing off. 
I, I want to I wanna hear y'all's thoughts on it because there's a part of me that feels like adding Rumi into the mix in this way is almost like one layer too much. I feel like it I feel like it almost like convolutes it a little bit too much and I'm I'm open very open begging in fact to okay. be swayed to be swayed from that. Okay. Here's my my galaxy brain take okay. and you guys might not like it or agree with it. Okay. Okay. That twist isn't real. How it's so? imagined. It's the culmination of Mima's reality. Of all right? of it. It's her perceiving that because think about it, like Rumi is a former idol and so Mima sees that in herself. And she sees a future self of hers longing for the past to the point where she completely breaks. And that's why when Mima is chased she only sees the idol until the very end. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, but don't you don't you also think that it's just as light it makes just as much sense that that it's literal because Rumi as a former pop idol who is watching Mima experience something that is very familiar to her that she has gone through herself and through her frustration at not having been able to save herself from that that yeah, she and I mean, that she assumes she that that she assumes that persona doing it in a literalist sense uh it does feel like a classic giallo kind of twist end so you think yeah. so do you think then in that case then even the part at the very end where uh she goes to visit Rumi in the insane asylum that that's also that that's also imagined. Less into that. Cuz I think at that point like that's 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 where they draw the line on realities. You know like that's you think the, so? Yeah, I do. I think like that's where the the movie finally like says like no, she's she's just she's achieved her, her true self like she knows who she is now because that's that's what perfect blue is right because she was able to put her her old self away with Rumi right that Rumi self. that Rumi absorbed that old personality of hers and that she's able to lock it away with Rumi right yeah she, which she's is a lot, a lot exactly less. why I don't I'm into that actually if it's literalist well, well, think, because it's kind of metaphor it's saying well like, it's both oh, yeah and and I think I think it it doesn't need to be just metaphor. Or, uh, I, I think it, I think it works better as both literal and metaphor because like she is she's literally like Rumi is literally like her manager and acting as her manager throughout the film and engaging with like other aspects of her reality, um, and uh, she is also acting metaphorically as her future self. That's one thing I really love about this movie. I feel like there's space for both things to be true. That's what I'm saying. You know, exactly. Where, like, they play that up so many times throughout the movie earlier. You know, with her repeating things between performance and reality. Yeah. To the, you know, really hammer that point home. Where, mm -hmm. like, it can be literalist and a metaphor at the same time. Yes. And it and doesn't the movie even, completely like, matter. Even. During some of the scene for the for the the crime drama 
like during some of those scenes, uh, she says as much because the crime drama is specifically about an act is also about an actress who dissociates and thinks that she's she thinks that she's a pop star and she's killing people. And there's this great scene where we think that she's talking to like her actual doctor about who she is and her dissociations and whatnot. And then we pull back and we realize that it's all just a set. It's all part. Of it. And we've that several times throughout the movie where we start to, as the, the barriers break, you know, we, yeah. we start, we, we don't ever know when we're on a set or when we're just living our lives. Um, yeah. I am so immersed in the character and in that world that, and I think that works. And, yeah, I think it, it also works for her manager to be living so vicariously through her that she's essentially become her. And because of like the, the way that she is sort of incepting these ideas into her stalker, and then her stalker is sort of incepting these ideas into her, like she's sort of whispering into her ear from all angles. And so like, of course Mimi is like confused as to who... Rumi is versus who she is and Mimi doesn't know that's the whole point of the final sequence right is that Mimi doesn't Mima 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 is is having difficulty distinguishing Rumi from herself because that that was Rumi's whole goal in this and that was Rumi's whole whole issue so it is a shared dissociation between the two of them and that's why I think it's so fucking neat um and it's and it's shot just so well I love all of uh earlier in the film when when Mima is haunt Mima 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 is haunted by this like ghost of her her younger self of 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 uh, of, of Christmas past Christmas cake past oh yeah damn there, there you go there we go <laughs> yeah um she's she's haunted by her ghost of Christmas cake past um she's uh, the the ghost is like delicately like. Um, never flying, but like like low gravity, like hopping, hopping. from yeah. lamp post and to lamp post, like hopping and gliding, and yeah. it's so delicate, and um, it's kind of like almost Disney esque, like it's yeah. it's very like it's it's fantasy, and it's it's um one of those things that you really do need animation to do. Yeah, well. you can <laughs> never do that in live action; it, would, it wouldn't work. Not and, in nineteen ninety seven. No, I don't know either. But I, uh, uh, whenever we see. At the end, during the climax, when she's being chased by that version of her younger self, which we then see as Rumi, there's a sequence where she leaps, she has to leap off to a, a lower rooftop and fall. And uh, and then the the younger version, her ghost, delicately just glides down and lands next to her. And she continues to be chased over the rooftop, and like her, her younger self is just delicately gliding and dancing after her and it grabs an umbrella as it drops the 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 sharp like ice pick and um it's 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 leaping through the air and again it's it's like fucking peter pan um chasing after her uh this this delicate innocent cartoon of her of her younger self and then finally she gets down into the city streets and she's running and we get this wonderful shot where it's still the ghost of herself is delicately dancing and then in the mirror we see Rumi, who's, like, old and fat, like, wearing the same dress, huffing and puffing and just looking so, like, like and just so worn out and angry. And uh, I love that. I love that, like, the, the, like the, the duality there and how we get to kind of see it like it's, a, like it's a dream. And finally, when she has her on the ground and she's strangling her, I, I just, just, just love the shot of... Uh, 
her younger face distorting and becoming the becoming mm. Rumi. Because Rumi, like the stalker, has those same wide the fish eyes. Fish like eyes. And so like as she morphs into Rumi, like her eyes like separate. And it, it's so spooky and the fucking gross. the phot- the photographer does too the the one who yeah. like makes her get naked he also has like the really unnaturally wide set fish eyes and it really is just like a motif in the movie it's yeah. like anybody who's real bad has the same fucking insmith look they all they're all and i guess you know if you think about it that really is kind of a, a tip off from uh from the very beginning that yeah. that well, room that Rumi done fu- that she's fucked up yeah, which but i appreciate you were you were quiet on because you'd seen the movie before but i i i kind of called like earlier on where um during the rape scene we cut to the the tech booth and we see um Rumi there and she's she's first like she's also dissociating she her, we she's see her, crying. her cigarette well before she even starts crying she dissociates and her cigarette like burns all the way you know it's like all the way down and there's like a long ash on the end of it and then finally during the scene yeah like she starts breaking down and crying and during that point i was like oh damn it'd be pretty wild if she was the killer um and i think tees you made the joke Damn! What do you think? Like all the, if they look like fish, they're, they're a bad. Yeah, they're bad people. They're the, they're the bad guys. They, they kind of were. Like that kinda, actually was the, the theme, yeah. and it's, it worked. It works really well. It's very intentionally done. You know, mm. it's this movie is like, in my opinion, one of the best examples of like subjective perspectives in movies mm. because it's very much all the way through Mima's eyes. You know, everything we Her see. Eyes. It, yeah, in this film. <laughs> Are through is through her perspective. Yeah, except and, for the couple of instances where we see through the stalker's perspective. Yeah, but that's those are that's just like two or three times. Really. But even like both like her views of people kind of color how they are drawn, and the unreliability of things. Mm. You know, like I I kind of feel like it's rare to see unreliable narrators in film. You know, mm-hmm. it's they're very common in literature, but it's difficult to do that in film because, you know, the camera is kind of such a passive observer to the point where, like, we view that as reality. Yeah. And uh, as an external as an external lens. Yeah. That's why I kind of feel like animation really makes this movie work on oh, a level yeah. where, like, traditional filmmaking would be limited because like with that degree of separation of not knowing what's real and what's not in you know the the world of the film it works so much better in animation because that there's that little bit of separation yeah i mean i think i think i i could pretty clearly see this movie like in live action um just because of the way it's it's framed. Well, if a you want to see this movie in live action, uh, watch the movie Black Swan, because uh, Darren Aronofsky rips this movie off pretty wholesale. Yeah, Black Swan is one that I have is one of his that I have not seen, but I do know that he he does like rip off shot for shot that the he, he owns the American rights to this movie um, solely so he can pull shots and sequences from it wholesale it's insane you know what it, it it reminds me of um strongly is yeah darren aronofsky seems to be like 
he, he pulls from Satoshi Kon the same way that the Wachowskis pull from Ghost in the Shell. All the time. Because, like, cause the, the, the Wachowskis are quoted as saying that they were, like, the Matrix was just their attempt at making a live-action Ghost in the Shell. And they've, they've never really, like, stepped away from yeah. that, um, for bad or, or, or for good, mostly bad. Well, I mean, um, I think now the more accepted thing is that it's a big trans allegory. Well, no, but I mean, like, like the, the whole aesthetic of the Matrix sure. is, is Ghost in the Shell from, like, front to back, and the whole concept of, like, jacking in and realities uh, uh, breaking down. Um, that's all. Like, Ghost in the Shell is, like, a whole thing about false memories and, you know, being manipulated and all the rest of it. Like, that's, yeah, indicative of the the, the story. So, no, it, uh, this yeah. one is a whole nother level, though. Mm-hmm. Buying the American rights yeah. solely yes, to pull no, things yes. directly from it. Mm-hmm. And uh, being... Yeah, it's a lot more literal. Yeah, Ripping stuff off. You can just say ripping stuff off. Uh, yeah, is yeah, like that's a whole nother ball game. Well, honestly. yeah. Famously, he ripped off the scene in this movie where she's like in the bathtub, like curled up in the fetal position, and she's got like her face underwater. He just like rips that off, shot for shot, in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. Um. I feel like I, I saw not too long ago like a, a text interview with Satoshi Khan, um, somebody was asking him, like, how he felt about, like, Aronofsky, like, paying homage to him in Requiem for a Dream, and Khan was just like, it feels more like he's just, like, ripping me off, but it's <laughs> cool, I guess. <laughs> so I might be mis- I might, you know, yeah. paraphrasing that, but, um, yeah, Satoshi Khan's fingerprints, uh, are all over a lot of, like, big Western cinema. Um, Aronofsky, like, obviously the the Paprika Inception comparison is unavoidable as well. A lot of, like, a lot of filmmakers that are, like, the smart filmmakers for dumb guys, you know? Yeah. I think I think Aaron Aronofsky and Nolan... I like like films that they've both made, but they're, they're both just, like like smart movies for dumb guys yeah yeah no i, I couldn't agree more it's but like it's i weird. said before like it also feels like this movie in a way colored stuff that was to come like uh mulholland drive even if it wasn't a literal inspiration it yeah. feels like it's in that same lineage you think talking about performance you think david lynch likes anime do you think David Lynch has seen Evangelion? I wonder if David Lynch has seen anime at all. Yeah, I, I would love to know if David Lynch has seen Perfect Blue. Yeah. I like I like I like the idea that he has, but it's just like one piece and shit. Oh yeah, he's he's he has seen anime but exclusively shonen stuff. Oh god. He's a big he's a big Naruto head. <laughs> I just like the way he runs. Like a I think ninja. It's, I think it's really charming how he runs like that. It's <laughs> I know, you know, I just I've been watching it for so long and I'll never know if he actually gets the one piece. <laughs> I know Man, I, could do, I could do this all I could do this bit all night. I know Wes <laughs> Anderson is famously like a huge Evangelion head. <laughs> <which is laughs> like weird but also like kinda tracks. <laughs> I feel yeah. like. 
Do we do we have any other things we want to hit on Perfect Blue, or do we want to? There is one thing I want to talk about: how great all of the kill sequences. Oh um, yeah, in this yeah. film are. You're talking about Giallo. Um, yeah. One of my favorites is the director is in a parking garage, and faintly we hear the uh, the idol song from the beginning of the movie. Yeah, the angel of love smiles and at you. He goes. The lyrics are different. They're more are possessive. They? Yeah. Oh, I thought the lyrics I were, the same. were the same. I'm pretty sure, yeah. yeah. You know those lyrics are always that possessive? I yeah. Yeah, yeah. talk yeah. about being I, aggressive. And yeah, because I, I noticed that at the beginning, like, when she's performing oh, that song. and so the different that you, you perceive it. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like it, it sets up the rest of the movie so great because the song she's singing about the angel of love smiling at you, it's like... It's like, you got to be more aggressive with your love. That's how you'll get your shot. You know, like that's the lyrics of the song. It's like, meanwhile, she we're seeing her held in the palm of this creepy, ugly dude's hand as he's watching the performance. Um, and uh, so the song is played in the parking garage. Yeah. And he goes she to hears investigate. like faintly. Yeah. And he goes to investigate and he opens the elevator and I love how, like, the audio is so loud that it's, like, distorted. It's, like, um, kind of, yeah, there's a boombox sitting there yeah. on the el- on the floor of the elevator. And when he opens it, it's, like, yeah, it's, like, the it's turned up so loud that it's, like, um, it's, like, blown out. It's, yeah. like, clipping, kind of. Yeah, and uh, we immediately cut to the elevator opening on a floor above, and he's dead. And, ah. Oh, it's just so well. And the done. news like he was, he was he was stabbed. The back of the wall he so was good. stabbed umpteen times. This is right. what the news says. Umpteen times. Couldn't even stabbed so many times they couldn't even give an accurate count. You got my boy like Caesar. Yeah, I I love I love the scene where where uh, she kills the. Uh... Where are the idols of March? Hey. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll yeah. I'll take that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like the scene later where she kills the uh, the photographer too, disguised as like the pizza man. Yeah, that is so giallo right there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But brutal. Yeah, just uh, like her, like she stabs him in the groin. Like, yeah, it's rough through then, the hand when he's trying to go for. The oh phone. god, that shot! Yeah, when he, he yeah. puts his hand on the phone and then immediately like the ice. Well, the the very through. first one is like right into his eye. She yeah. just you know yeah. stabs him right through the eye. Also, the eye trauma, very giallo. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fulci would be proud. Yeah, yeah, Fulci and Argento would both be proud. Um, but yeah, then when she like gets him into the apartment, she's like on top of him and stabbing him, and like every blow of the knife is like punctuated with like a flash frame of her like naked and vulnerable during the photo shoot. Yeah. Just like close ups of like her breasts and like her her butt and, and what's cool is with with past context or with future context, um you know it's it's roomy. But it's it, Is it? Yeah. But we're seeing the the scene play out is as Rumi would see it. Like as like Rumi at this point of the story is dissociating and identifying herself as Mima. So during this sequence when when she stabs him to death, like she's perceiving herself as Mima and she's getting revenge for this photo shoot. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I guess I can read it as that. Yeah, that's what I saw it as. Like all the kills throughout the film, like whenever like uh, it's either the stalker or it's it's Rumi. Like, and, you know, because at this point, Rumi sees herself as the true Mima. 
So she's she's going around avenging these uh, these actions that have you know taken been taken against the what she sees as slights against the the real Mima. Yeah, I mean, I I can definitely see that for the the writer in in the elevator because that sort of ha- we don't actually see that we only see like the aftermath of mm-hmm. it. But I don't know, like the 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 scene where she kills the photographer is like so personal and like subjective, like from her perspective that I don't I I kind of feel like that that's act might actually be Mima. I don't know. I think it's. No, I don't. I, I, I for me, yeah, I, I really like that Mima truly does leave this movie whole and 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 good. Like, I don't think the two have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah but, but well, I I do love that this movie. Well, I think mur- is, murdering is probably not whole and good, but I love that this movie is abstract to the point where both things can be true. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I think this movie is really dense and rich in that respect to the point where you could watch this movie multiple times and have multiple interpretations. Yeah, cuz I mean if it, it could it could just as well be the stalker mm-hmm. killing the photographer as well. The stalker, the stalker less often perceives himself as her. But like Right, but he's doing her he's acting as as her hand. He's acting as her will. So he is he's doing things like on her behalf. Like, he is portraying her on this message board. He is writing as her. We even see that his mouth, while he's typing, his mouth is moving, but her voice is coming out. That is true, yeah. So I I think that like Yeah, yeah I, I think I think you could make a valid argument for any of the three of them doing any just about any of the kills. Yeah. And I and I I like that it's mm-hmm. open to interpretation mm-hmm. like is. that. It is like, um, and so I, th- I think just I think my read of it after one watch, you know, and being open to change over time is is that what I I like to get out of the film is that she has this crisis of self of identity, and through all of these events, she does manage to rise above, discover who she truly is. And come out of it unscathed and whole. And you know, may, maybe I'm reading too deep into this, but like her, her, her former self, and the the fear of what she could become are both red and pursuing her out of this very real world. And the world itself is often cool, colored, and blue. And it isn't until the very end where she says, "No, I know who I am now." That and it's blue. It's a blue reflection. You know, in the real world, she finally like finds herself tethered. That she's able to live her life just as who she is and pursue her career and her dream and just, and, and be Mima. I mean, yeah. And I I think that like, if she murdered a whole bunch of people and, and like, she didn't actually have a psychotic, like she had, she had a, 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 a psychotic like break of identity that she's healing from and that she like through these experiences, like these traumas, she's able to like find herself again but if she actually like murdered a whole bunch of people, like like I, I yes, anyone is capable of redemption, and like she could be saved. But like I don't, I just don't know if that works as as cleanly. If that puts like as good of a bow on the ending. I mean, if, like, it's since she it's also all... murdered all those people. I think like the big reveal is like throughout the movie is like we don't know if she did murder those people or not. 
And at the end of the movie, when it's revealed that, like, the true evil is her manager, who's been living vicariously through her, that that reveals that her manager killed everyone. But she was so... They got so caught up in in identity that, like, the, the line was blurred. But, like, the reality is that, like, her manager killed all those people. I mean, I think that that's a perfectly valid rating and one that I don't think is wrong. But I think you can still come to the same conclusion where she comes out of the movie being whole and her true self and no longer having a conflict of identity after going through a cleansing fire metaphorically where she has burned away that outer self to reveal what is in between and that what she has done through all of that is, you know, violence upon herself and others and that being able to literally lock Rumi away is able is allows her to mm. put those sins onto something external and purify herself of them like it's maybe not it's maybe not as like an objectively like good ending where she does come out clean and pure but it still allows her to come out feeling clean and pure whether that's literal or otherwise and i'm not saying that that's like the correct interpretation either i think that there's Uh, i think both are valid reads yeah and again you know i i think uh part of the magic of this film is with it being so abstract and open to interpretation, the way they pull that off is through the attention to detail in every single element. Yeah. Where, like, I feel like lesser movies that try to be ambiguous or whatever and lack detail just feel sloppy. This feels so tightly crafted um, to the point where those things can both be true. Yeah. And I think, honestly, this feels like a movie where your interpretation of it can change from one viewing to the next. Yes. I mean, that's true of a lot of movies, but I feel like I could watch this today and think one thing and watch it tomorrow and think something else. Um, and that's because, the, like, good art. That's the magic of movies, baby. Yeah. yeah. And, like, good art, it provokes cognition. That's mindset. You know? Yeah. That's great. It makes you think. Well, shall we rate this? Yeah. Cleveland, this was your pick, so you start us off. You do the honors. Damn, I wonder what I'm going to give what this movie. What could Cleveland possibly what give this movie? What in the world could I give Perfect Blue? Well, it's a perfect five out we, of five. We knew it at the end of last week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here we are. And here we are, yeah. Ben, um, an ending easy to predict. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike yeah. this film. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually a five out of five for me, too. Yeah. I, I love this movie. Um, it's maybe... Satoshi Khan's best film. Uh, you know, my opinion on that Ooh. changes with They're the They're all wind. so good. Yeah, I, I think this is a fantastic movie. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure going into this this episode if i was if i was going to give it a, a five out of five i was i was leaning more towards a four and a half but after the discussion i think i think y'all have have sort of brought me around on some of the things that i was a little lukewarm on and uh i i won't i won't keep this from golden pod status Baby. so we'll yeah. it'll be that's two weeks in a row. Hell yeah. Two Ooh, golden whoa. pods in a row. I feel like they come in, they come in groups when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I also so like... we'll, we'll hit like a little stride where we're like, well, we only want to talk about like 
bangers for a minute. <laughs> and then, we, then we, get, we, get, we get tired of being on top of the mountain. You know, we have to send, descend back into the, val- the valley of well, dog no, shit. Well, no, and then a turkey squawks and, you know, <laughs> ruins it. Hopefully that's not next week's movie. We'll find out. That's right. Well, we're finally going back to the movies next week. Yes. We're finally going back to the movies. It's been... uh, We've been a little bit of a mid-year slump for the last couple months. There's not been much. There's been a few big horror movies coming out, but they're not ones we're terribly interested in. Yeah, I did go see The Boogeyman, and I thought that was pretty good. Um, But I don't really give a shit about Insidious, The Red Door. Yeah, I was about to say. Um, but anyway, next week's film I am very interested in. Uh, we didn't predict it because uh, it was not uh, on our radars at the beginning of the year. But uh, we're going to be talking about Talk to Me, the which, new uh, Australian horror film from A24. Which should hopefully be a cool episode. Um, uh, as of recording, I am uh, flying out next week to San Diego Comic Con for work. And uh, I am hopefully going to be going to a screener of that that's hosted by some pretty cool people. Um, I'm not 100% if that's going to happen yet, but because um, of all yeah, the writer's strike the stuff, strike, like, is, the writers and actors strike, yeah. Right now, but, um, I, w- I wouldn't bank on that. Yeah, I wouldn't bank on it, but uh, maybe I'll have some cool insights that week, or maybe I'll have just gone to an aquarium instead. We'll find out. Well, <laughs> we'll you'll have seen you'll have seen the movie regardless. Yes, that, that <laughs> um, I will have done. And we'll um, and we will be we will be here to talk about it. A uh, quick thing, I just I, I would I would think feel bad to not touch on uh before is have either of y'all seen millennium actress yeah no yes okay do you think it plays into perfect blue anyway i just i, I feel like it'd be bad for us to like not touch on it i was going to earlier i have because i haven't seen it it's a great movie it i feel like it plays in a middle ground between you know perfect blue and paprika where it's a bit more directly surreal is it also um, about a pop star no, it's been a long oh, it's time. It's about since a millennium I've seen actress, it. Cleveland. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. it. Yeah, I'm going to watch it to find out. Okay, cool. That's all. I just I wanted to kind of touch on that because I feel like there's probably some themes there, but I haven't seen it. So. All right. Well, next week's episode is Talk to Me. Come, come listen to us talk to you. <laughs> Sponsor time. Sponsor time. Well, we already know this. This episode is sponsored by Kimonos. Um, but but the shelf is glowing red and angry when I say that. I think there's another sponsor. Yeah, the shelf week. did not. The so, shelf did not uh, clear that. Yeah, the shelf is saying, "Commode, no, it's not." The actual sponsor this week is your greatest personal failure. What have you done? We know you did it, and that's this episode sponsor. Another like very appropriate sponsor for the film we've talked about, I think. So yeah. it keeps happening. Keeps happening. You know? Like we don't know what the sponsorship is. It's almost yeah, it's almost like it's we're fake. being guided by some sort of intelligence from beyond. Alright, well that'll that'll do it for us this week. If you like the show, don't forget to leave us a five star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. Oh yeah. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podpeoplepod. Yeah. It ain't Patreon. It's Patreon. As always, shout out to our honorary pod boys, Sam, Zach, and Micah. We love and appreciate you guys. All love. Thank um, you. Yeah, join the Patreon. You can get into the Discord and come hang out with us. Hell yeah. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at podpeoplepod and at letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod. 
where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. And once again, you can see all of our golden pods there. Last week, Tremors went in there. This week, yeah. Perfect Blue went in there. Very different movies. Very different. Will will we hit will we hit a three peat next week? I I wouldn't bank on it, but we'll <laughs> see. Never know. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at some spooky snake. Uh, for my recommendation corner, I feel like I need to recommend some sort of anime. So yeah. I'm gonna recommend uh, the anime film Golgo Thirteen: The Professional. Um, it's kind of a. What is that? <laughs> it's an awesome '90s anime movie Ooh, where it's like James Bond esque secret agent. Um, Do we have a contender for the title of anime, Ronan? (laughs) I'll I'll concede it willingly. No. Nope. (laughs) What's up, up, Captain Weed? I was looking through my letterbox for anime recommendations because I couldn't find anything that wasn't obvious. Like, like everyone's seen Miyazaki. Everyone has seen fucking Grave of the Fireflies or whatever, or heard of it. But Golgo 13, pretty, I've, pretty dang. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, yeah, I was looking for a deep cut. My problem is there's so many like great anime movies I, I have heard about, but I still haven't seen. There's just so many good ones. Um, so, anyway, uh, thank you for the recommendation, Ben. Um, uh, this week, uh, MFN is out! Go play My Friendly Neighborhood! Uh, it was out last week, too. Oh, but... well, even better! It's still out! It's, it's still, still there. out there. Why haven't you played it yet? It's been a week. It's there, and it's fun. And it's supporting a cool indie studio. You should get some artists. sick MFM merch as well. That's a, that's a, that's a limited edition one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am trying to get you guys shirts, though, because you, you were the inspiration for that. Yeah. I appreciate you. So... Um, so uh, don't get them because they're already there's sold other out. Cool merch. But there is other cool merch, though, so you can go and leave that in. But uh, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, there, there's all sorts of cool shit. Uh, but most importantly, go go check out my friendly neighborhood. Oh, and lastly, of course, thank you again, Spence, um, uh, for uh, the the your, your wonderful Being guiding our hand. resident otaku. No, don't call him that. That's he's not here to defend himself. Uh, I don't even know if he would, but uh, <coughs> yeah. No, thank, thank you. Thanks, Spencer. He can fight us on that next time. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Spencer, and thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this perfect episode. <laughs> <laughs>